0: Hello and welcome to a history of Hannibal, episode eighteen, Saguntum. Having examined the general circumstances of the breakout of the Second Punic War, it only makes sense to now look at the detail of the situation, to look at the siege of Saguntum. But before all that, we have other matters to discuss: podcasting matters. Sparked by a number of things, the podcast is currently going through a bit of a... facelift. You will have perhaps noticed the podcast's new artwork when downloading the episode, and listening to it now, I hope you notice my new microphone. I have, after over two years of podcasting, decided it's time for an upgrade, and I am thrilled with the improvement. Unfortunately, This places the audio quality of the older episodes in poor light, so they are all going to be re-recorded. The plan is to go back and update the back catalogue of the show, while for Alexander I'm going to release a new feed, a history of Alexander, remastered. So far, only episode one of Hannibal has received this facelift. So, go download that now. But, more will follow. In tune with the upgrade in audio quality is some new theme music. Which you will have also noticed. Unless, of course, you're listening to this in the future. In which case, you'll be wondering what I am talking about. The other thing we need to mention is the second Project History Cage match has been released on the feeds of both the British History Podcast and the History of World War II podcast. In this episode, the topic is Rome. Overrated? Myself and Jamie Jeffers argue that Rome is overrated, while Royfield Brown, Ray Harris, Zach Twamley, and Jordan Harbour argue that Rome deserves its reputation. To whet your appetites, Here is a preview of the full hour-long show. Enjoy.
1: Okay, it's time for another Project History cage match. For centuries, scholars have looked to Rome as a shining beacon of antiquity. This point of view has become so prevalent that even in pop culture, Rome is treated as the pinnacle of the ancient world. But was it? That will be the subject for today's cage match, Rome. Overrated? With us today are a number of esteemed podcasters, and if you would do me a favor and introduce yourselves.
2: I'm Roy Phil Brown from the podcast How Jamaica Conquered the World.
3: I am Rory Harris, uh, the History of World War II podcast.
4: I am Zach Twamley from When Diplomacy Fails podcast. My name is Jordan Harbour. I'm, uh, my podcast is
1: The Twilight Histories. I am
4: Jamie Redfern. I
1: create the podcast A History of Hannibal. And as for me, I'm the guy behind the British History Podcast, so why don't we start out first with the pro-Rome side.
3: I have done detailed research for at least seven minutes, but then I figured that wasn't working, so I went back and listened to all the history of Rome from Mike the Great Duncan. And uh, to me, it simply comes down to this, um, even though... Or early Roman history you know, was influenced by the Etruscans, who they conquered. And then as they spread out and conquered other peoples, and even though Rome did a really good job of um, assimilating uh, the people that they conquered, they also picked up things from their various cultures. And, of course, there's everything they got from the Greeks. But it simply comes down to this. Because the Roman Empire, in its many different forms, was around for so long, they pretty much left an impression that we are still influenced by today so ultimately
1: your argument is cultural influence they've had such an enormous influence on western culture
3: absolutely i'm wearing a toga right now i mean who isn't but uh no but just pretty much um not. yeah okay you're probably not wearing anything but anyway uh, yeah I mean, just, yeah i mean just because of because of everything they left behind that's what we built on that's what civilizations do they build on the one that comes before it and that's why i'm on this side of the fence
0: but, Ray, if you look at like um, civilizations built on the ones before, why are you not arguing that Greece is the pinnacle of the classical world rather than Rome, when so many Roman ideas were based on Greece?
3: No, absolutely. They, Greece deserves a lot of the credit, but Rome pretty much takes it from them. So um, we could argue backwards, just think that the Romans get a lot of the credit, even though it wasn't their inventions, even though they are the ones who didn't come up with this, they do get the credit, rightly or wrongly.
1: Well, but that's the thing. Is is, is it wrongly?
3: Let me try a different approach. Possession is nine-tenths of the law. Yeah, they stole it, but they stole it, so uh, <laughs> they, they give credit for it.
2: <laughs> Touché.
3: Can't
2: argue with that. You had a coin that you could take from Hadrian's Wall and use that same coin all the way down to the Persian border. Obviously, there was Bronze Age trading. And one of the things I've discovered from your uh, podcast, uh, Mr. Jeffers, is how extensive that was, you know, before the before the, before they before the Romans came. And obviously the Celts, you know, weren't cave dwellers. But it's taken Europe, what, 1,500 years after the fall of the Roman Empire to reinstitute it in the form of the European Union. Well, not even that, arguably 2000, because um, now we have um, the European you know, common European currency, which was the denarii and the sesterce back then. So, it seems
1: like one of the core arguments you're making is stability—that Europe had stability during the Roman Empire. Well, let's let's talk about that stability then. So, let's just look at periods of civil war and instability. So, to begin with, we've got the Roman Republic crisis, which was filled with all manner of unrest from about 133 BCE to 44 BCE, and then we get the post-republic era and things should be okay, but then you've got the post Caesarean War in 44 BCE, the Liberators Civil War in 44 to 42, the Sicilian Revolt in 44 to 36 BCE, That's it's a long one, the Perusine War 41 to 40, and then the final war of the Roman Republic in 32 to 30 BCE. And then you've got in 69 CE, you've got the Year of the Four Emperors. Then things get a little bit okay until somebody puts James. Claudius in charge, and then you've got the Year of the Five Emperors. And okay, Jamie, I, I, <laughs> I, 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 I can keep wanted, on going. I'd love you know, to keep going, Roy
2: But do you know the reason why you know of all these wars? It's because because they're writing them down. They exactly. did a great job of writing down how unstable they were. Are you seriously <laughs> telling me? Are you seriously telling me that you're? Um pre-roman brits didn't indulge in a little bit of bloodletting on a daily basis <laughs> <laughs> Are you,
3: if, you I, know,
2: if i go, might go, interject on. your uh, go fellows. for it, jordan go for it. warfare was pretty
1: you could use the word ubiquitous if you want to describe ancient uh, ancient warfare it, it permeated all aspects of life. It was it was everywhere. It was ubiquitous. Uh, you want to talk about you know great cultures in, in the ancient world? Uh, talk about Greece during its golden age. And during its golden age, it was also going through one of the most ruthless wars of their history, the Peloponnesian War. I mean, it, it's been compared to the First World War as, as just a, a bleeding white of the peoples of Greece. I don't know if I feel comfortable saying that, you know, judging a culture, in the ancient world at least, by um, how much warfare it engaged in. Not, not warfare, but civil war. is just a good indicator of how stable a culture is because for a civil war to happen, you have to have a certain level of instability. You're going to have to have factions within your population that are willing to kill to get control. Life
2: was valued a whole lot less. Back then, and arguably life was valued a whole lot less up to the point of the the, the first world war oh
1: I don't think you can say that uh, before before uh, Rome, you had uh, uh,
2: civilizations that were
1: outlawing slavery, you had civilizations that outlawed torture, you had civilizations that that granted much better human rights who? to uh, who yeah. how about How about the Persians? How about uh, uh, dealing with Cyrus the uh, the great Cyrus the Great outlawed slavery. He uh, he went and... God, what else did he do? But he enslaved the, the world. He did not. He actually, <laughs> come on. Cyrus the Great, actually, and he allowed all customs and religions to operate within his borders. I mean, Cyrus had the, um, is it the cedar tree record thing. And that's considered like the
0: first real documents on the path to human rights. Like, uh, that is the origin of it. I remember watching this uh, bit of a documentary all about it. And it went from that to like the Magna
1: Carta, like it kind of skipped Rome in terms of human rights. And and that's the thing is, I mean, we're talking about this is the 6th century BCE. You've got the Romans were pretty awful on human rights. I don't I'm not saying that there should be a civilization that is put up on a pedestal. What I'm specifically saying is Rome doesn't deserve to be there either.
4: I'm I'm going to interject and give you my uh, two cents here. I'm looking at the uh, Wikipedia page on the map that it gives you, the really good map from 117 A.D., the one with Trajan as the emperor. The empire at that stage, it stretched. It never got any bigger than that. Now, as we know, once he died, um, parts of it were given back and abandoned and so on. But uh, it stretched from Babylonia to Scotland, from Germania to modern-day Morocco, from Hispania to the bottom of the Nile. And anything, anything that stretches that far, that, that, that is that big, I mean, we could say that, oh, well, China was better than Rome because China covered a larger area than Rome. And, like, that would, that would be fair to say, except when you look at the diversity in the peoples that Rome governed. And I know that we were, we were saying earlier on about the, uh, the Roman gods. Well, one thing about the Roman gods is the amount of gods that they adopted into their own pantheon. That's not bloodthirsty. Yes, they were bloodthirsty. That's being culturally smart. Any any empire that does
2: that deserves credibility. But what, but something that Ray said to me before, you know, why have the Romans had such, such a good press? History teaches us that history is written by the victors. And the very fact that ultimately the Romans are lost and they still have a good press tells us something. Did Rome really fall is a question often debated
0: by academics of late antiquity and the early medieval period. What were the barbarians trying to do when they were coming in? What were the Franks doing? What were the Goths doing? They were seeking settlement within the empire. They weren't trying to invade the empire. They weren't trying to take um, like have their own independent states. They wanted to be in the empire. There's a famous quote, like, I thought of destroying Romania and replacing it with Gothica, but now I want Gothica to renew Romania. Like, they didn't want to destroy Rome. They wanted to be Rome. Rome just kind of dissolved its powers to these various states. They dissolved, like, Aquitaine to the Goths. They dissolved northern France to the Franks. And so it wasn't really defeated, it just kind of dissolved its way, like, delegated itself out
1: of existence, really. Let me me pitch something to you. Can we all agree... That despite the fact that Rome was terrible on human rights, had a shoddy economic and legal system, wasn't the biggest, and didn't have the best international relations, and tended to rip off most of its neighbors, (laughs) it was still influential upon Europe.
3: Hell yeah. Yes.
1: No,
2: no, no, no. (laughs) (laughs) Well, majority rules, Royfield. (laughs) You can tell the lawyer is here, can't you? It's like, no, 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 no. I do not agree with that premise.
3: Yeah,
4: I think we're just going to have to agree to disagree at this stage.
3: There we go. Good job. As one of you was talking, I had to put my uh, microphone on mute and explain to a local uh, police officer exactly what I'm doing in the parking lot of the local <laughs> library using the internet. Oh god, you're internet back in the library. Home. So I have to explain Skype. I have to explain a podcast. I have to explain a podcast wow. show. I have to. Yeah, I've got. I've got headphones on. I'm holding a big microphone. It just looks suspicious. So
2: he put it. Oh, he god. put his
3: gun. He put. He put his gun back. I'm still here. God wow. bless America.
0: The Project History Cage Match. Rome. Overrated? Go check that out. Now, actual history. It is 219 BC. Rome has issued Hannibal an ultimatum not to attack Saguntum, which, for reasons we discussed last week, He refuses to accept. He is forced to attack this Greek colony, about a mile from the eastern coast of the Iberian Peninsula. Hannibal launches a triple assault on the city. One of the city's walls faced a slope, levelling out onto a plain. Hannibal used battering rams against this wall, but the wall was strong, and the defender's face the attack proved unsuccessful at first the scuntines were happy just to use missiles against the carthaginians but soon their confidence increased and they made raids against the enemy camp which resulted in casualties to all an early decisive moment in the siege was hannibal getting too close to the walls of the settlement he was injured in the thigh by a javelin all the troops in the area fled operations quietened and the situation turned into well a siege both sides were waiting it wasn't long until the siege began again the defenders were having a hard time of it They were outmanned significantly, though I doubt the Carthaginians had a force 150,000 strong, as Livy claims. The battering rams all over the city were having their effect, as the exhausted defenders tried desperately to solve each new crisis, no doubt waiting for the help from Rome, which would never come. Eventually, a breach was made, and the Carthaginians flooded into the gap in the city's defences. It was less of a skirmish, more like a pitched battle, in the small space between the walls and the buildings just behind them. Livy says in Book 21, Chapter 8, Hope on the one side, the courage of despair on the other, were raised to the highest pitch. I really do like Livy. As time passed, the fighting grew more and more intense as the casualties mounted. This had a very interesting effect on morale. The Carthaginians had been expecting a quick victory once they broke into the city. The Saguntines had been expecting this too. They were both very surprised by how the battle was going. This led to delight for the Saguntines And despair for the Carthaginians. It showed. The Carthaginians were expelled from the city and forced back into their own camp. Hannibal allowed his men a few days rest, improving morale. The Zaguntines used the time to rebuild the breach in their defences. When the attack came, it was not rain but a flood. The defenders were assaulted on all sides. Hannibal was there at the front, inspiring his men. They pushed and managed to take some of the city's towers. The defenders responded by building a wall behind the wall that had been taken. The position was becoming harder and harder for the Saguntines to maintain. They needed help, desperately. Surely Rome would help them. They had made an alliance with them after all. Surely help would come. Surely. This belief waned ever so slightly more with each passing day. Morale improved marginally as Hannibal left to nip a revolt from the Ortani and Carpitani in the bud. But Mahabal carried on the assaults. Barely anyone noticed Hannibal's absence. Such was the effort of Mahabal. More of the walls were taken, and upon his return, Hannibal led an assault which managed to capture some of the central stronghold. The situation was dire, and a Saguntine citizen, Alco, snuck out to ask the Carthaginians for mercy, thinking this was the only hope they had left. He presented himself to Hannibal. He pleaded, but Hannibal only offered extremely harsh and cruel terms. That Saguntum would make full reparations to the Turditani, who were involved in the beginnings of the conflict. That the city should give all its gold and silver to Hannibal. Then they should abandon the town, with nothing other than the clothes on their backs, and resettle wherever Hannibal chose. I can understand why Alco was unwilling to agree to this. Rather than agree, he defected to Carthage, as he couldn't take those terms back to Saguntum, and live to tell the tale. Upon hearing of this, a Spaniard, serving with Hannibal, but who also held the title of friend and guest of the Saguntines, Alorcus, thought that where everything had been lost, the will to resist goes too. He tried to negotiate a peace. He entered the city and offered the Saguntines the same terms Hannibal had offered Alco. The response of the city's senators was to burn all the existing gold and silver they still had. This moment, Hannibal realised, was the time to strike and end the war. He launched a full-scale attack and overwhelmed the town. Eight months after the beginning of the siege, the town fell. What valuables that were left were taken. Hannibal returned to winter in New Carthage. In the next year, 218 BC, he would begin his journey to Italy. If you like the show, visit us in all the usual places online thehistoryofpodcast.blogspot.com, Facebook.com forward slash the history forward slash the YouTube.com forward slash the history at gmail and the History Podcasts Facebook group. You can check out some maps, make a comment, suggestion, or ask a question. If you want to support the show, why not visit the website and buy something through our Amazon links? It doesn't cost anything extra to do so, and I'll get a quarter of whatever you spend. If you're looking for a recommendation, this week I'll go with an album being released on Monday the 22nd of October. Read by Taylor Swift. I am an unashamedly huge Taylor Swift fan. She has a wonderful voice, her music is awesome, and insanely catchy. It's what I will be listening to for the next week. Well, month. Well, couple of months. Well, until her next album comes out, really. So yeah, go check that out. I'll see you next week, when we begin Hannibal's march to Italy.